This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. It is good to be back with you. Uh, my name is Zach Lutz. If you don't know me, uh, my wife and I were on vacation in the States for the last two weeks. So you're here with uh, Kyle. Uh, and also you got to see uh, David, David Kim up here as well, which is a small plug for uh, we're looking for people helping us with the liturgy service. If you're interested in helping us with that, uh, talk to Kyle or I or Natalia after service. Uh, we would love to get you plugged in there um, and help, help this congregation lead us through our worship. While we were on vacation in the States, the first week that we were there, so about two weeks ago, um, our kids came down with some cold virus thing, right? And I think about 50% of this congregation did too, from what I heard. Uh, it was making, making its rounds. And here's the thing about viruses. They're exceptionally difficult to trace. I mean, we, we try to. We try to be like, you know what? It was that school over there. They brought it and our kids hung out and then we all got it, you know? Uh, but it's actually much more difficult than that. There are some uh, sicknesses that are easier to trace, like chicken pox maybe, where you kind of know, you're like, oh, well, you know, it follows this, this sort of trail. But these common colds uh, and, and viruses and stuff are exceedingly difficult. And that's how the Bible talks about sin. It says that tracing the consequences of sin is exceptionally difficult. The consequences may be clear for us all to see, but exactly pinpointing where it came from and where it started is hard. Our sin causes untold damage. Consequences that, although are difficult for us to trace, cannot be ignored. David is a good king of Israel. And even when a good king sins, there are consequences. David sinned by taking Bathsheba as his wife and murdering Uriah. And though the consequences are difficult to trace, they create untold damage. And if you were here the last two weeks, you saw some of this damage. Theologians often call this misery. Some of the misery that would happen in David's life would be the death of the son that was born of David and Bathsheba's unfaithfulness. But we're about to see a lot more misery. Today we're going to read a story about the death of another one of David's sons named Absalom. And although we're just going to read the story of his death, what I'm going to do is actually go back over the previous six chapters and try to summarize the story arc of Absalom for us to make sense of his death at the very end. And we're going to do this so that we might trace the consequences of David's sin. And by tracing the consequences of David's sin, we might learn something about the consequences of our own sin. But I hope that we don't just learn about the consequences. I hope that we're also pointed back towards Jesus who is able to undo these consequences, to forgive us of the punishment and make all things new. So with that, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from 2 Samuel chapter 18, starting in verse 6. 2 Samuel chapter 18, starting in verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold! 
I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Job said to the man, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the yoke. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and they raised over him a very great heap of stones and all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. The business of tracing sin is a nasty business. We read here only the end of Absalom's life, but what I want to do for you is try to provide an entire context for why David had to send his entire army to kill his own son. To kill his own son. Absalom had children, David's grandchildren. Imagine what it was like for David to relate well with his grandchildren after sending an army to kill their father. Sin creates untold damage and misery. Now, if you were with us the last couple weeks, then you have a guess as to why it was necessary for David to send his army to kill Absalom. But again, I'm going to try to give us the backstory. So we're going to have to start way back. David, in his disobedience to God's law, took many wives. Bathsheba was just the most recent, the most atrocious example of coveting adultery and murder. But David had long been practicing disobeying God's commands on having just one wife. Maybe you remember Michal and Abigail, but there were many others. Two others are actually going to stand out for our story today. One is named Ahinoam of Jezreel, and another Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Ahinoam births David a son named Amnon. Maaka births David a son named Absalom. And Maaka also births David a daughter named Tamar. Now it is here I'm going to give a slight warning. The story gets a little R-rated. I'm going to do the best that I can to be sensitive to topics that are sensitive to us, but the Bible is not shy at acknowledging the misery that sin causes. Amnon loved his half-sister Tamar, and it being inappropriate and against God's law for him to marry her, he plotted, devised, and tricked others in order that he might rape his half-sister. The Bible records that she repeatedly refused, and he, being stronger than her, took advantage of her and afterwards despised her, cast her out of his presence, demeaning her even further and proving that in his mind she was not even human to him. David, their father, does nothing. Absalom, Tamar's full brother, Amnon's half-brother, takes matter into his own hands and plots for over two years before he murders his half-brother Amnon and goes into hiding, fearing retribution. The father of all three of these people is David. 
And at best in the story, if you were to read these last six chapters, he stood idly by and done nothing while his children commit atrocities against each other. I imagine that David, when he was choosing to take these additional wives, explained it away. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. And in fact, this is simply just the way that business is done in ancient Israel. You marry to create allegiances between warring factions. You reach alliances by marrying the daughters of other countries. It's just how business works. David refused to believe that there would be any consequences for his sin of taking other wives. Now, if you'll remember, God in his mercy had sent the prophet Nathan to confront David on his sin with Bathsheba, and David repented. And there's an important lesson here for us. You see, David was forgiven of the sin of his sin with Bathsheba and would not bear eternal punishment for it. Forgiveness, we might say, often most directly equals forgiveness from the punishment of sin, but not necessarily the consequences of the sin. What can we learn from the consequences that David is about to experience? Well, the first thing that we can learn is that sins, sin often has unintended consequences. As I mentioned, I don't think that David sat out to harm anyone else. When he was taking his wives, I'm sure that he thought it was just culturally expedient way to actually strengthen his nation. I think we, like David, assume that our sin won't harm anyone else. How often have you heard that if it's just consensual that there can't be any harm? As long as there's love, then it must be good. The problem is, is that we weren't just created for consensual relationships. We were con- created for monogamous, heterosexual ones. David didn't set out to harm his children. And it's really difficult to trace a straight line between his sin and the consequences with his children. But knowing the law of God, we know that had David not taken multiple wives, all of these problems could have been avoided. Right? No half-siblings to war against each other. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom ought not to have existed because God still knitted them together in their mother's womb despite the circumstances of their birth. And yet the circumstances of their birth set the stage for untold misery, damage, and heartache. Unintended, but there nonetheless. It's hard to draw a straight line between our sin and its consequences. But be sure that when you break God's law, there is unintended misery, damage, and heartache that the stage is set for. But we can get even more specific because it wasn't just unintended consequences of sin, but generational consequences of sin. And this is our second point. You see, David's sin not only results in a stage set of misery for his daughters and sons, but also causes his children to sin in particular ways. Listen to this. David lusted after a woman who, in God's law, he was not allowed to have a relationship with. His son Amnon lusted after a woman who, in God's law, he was not allowed to have a relationship with. David plotted a ruse in order to be with Bathsheba. Amnon plotted a ruse in order to be with Tamar. Because of David's sin with Bathsheba, she becomes a widow, grieving the death of her righteous husband Uriah. And because of Amnon's sin with Tamar, the Bible will say that Tamar tears her clothes, puts on sackcloths and ashes, and lives as a desolate woman. But it isn't just Amnon who sins like his father. Absalom does as well. But here we've got to go back into the story. So 
Absalom has just murdered Amnon because David didn't do anything to execute justice. He's fled into hiding for two years. Um, And while he's in hiding, uh, David becomes convicted that he's supposed to invite his son uh, back into Jerusalem um, by by, uh, another story. And so what he does is he invites his son back in, but he's still disappointed in Absalom. He's still ashamed at the sin that was committed. He's still a little upset that Absalom took matters into his own hand to kill his brother. And so although he invites him back, invites him back into the city, he doesn't actually give him an audience with the king. He invites him back into the city, but there's no real reconciliation. There's no real acknowledgement that harm was done. There's no real healing Two years go by where Absalom is not invited into uh, the king's presence. Uh, and it's an interesting side note that two years he plots for Amnon's death, and then for two years he's kept at a distance from David, but that's just a side note. Um, when he does finally get invited into uh, David's presence, it's an interesting story because what happens is he comes into the throne room and Absalom lays himself down on his face, and no words are exchanged, but it says that King David came up and he kissed his son. Now, we might think reading that story in our cultural context, that a kiss is quite warm and quite intimate, and that must signify some restoration. But considering what Absalom does next, it is very clear that this interaction, without any words exchanged, without any real reconciliation, was a cold, backhanded welcome into his presence. A great way to say, to say you're my son, but I'm ashamed of you. David is embarrassed about his own sin. He's embarrassed about his son's actions and the violation of his daughter and the murder of another son. But he ref- just like he refused to bring justice against Amnon for taking advantage of his daughter, so David here refuses to bring healing with Absalom, his son, who murdered another one of his sons. Sometimes, in our sin, we're so ashamed that we fail to discipline it rightly in our own children. Seeing our same sins recycle generationally, we say we don't really have room to speak of that because I too am imperfect. David's failure here would perpetuate generational consequences. And although David is ashamed of Absalom in the story, God isn't ashamed of you. When you come into his throne room and you lay yourself down and say, behold, I have sinned against him, He doesn't give you a cold, back-hearted kiss and say, you can stay in the city, but I'm still kind of ashamed of you. You guys remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son leaves and wastes all this stuff, and he comes back, and it says the father ran after him, put his robe on him, his ring, and caused him to sit down at his father's table. David didn't do this, though. He would perpetuate generational consequence. And so his father's coldness is clear to Absalom. So when Absalom leaves the throne room, he begins another two-year campaign uh, of starting a coup. And here's how he goes about doing it. He goes down to the city gates, uh, and he starts hearing the complaints of the people. And it appears that David is either overloaded and can't hear these complaints. This is kind of how um, court systems worked uh, in the ancient Near East. They would go to the gate, and they would be um, adjudicated as such. And so he just started saying, you know what, you're right, whatever their cause was. So it's like, you know, two people were in, and he'd want me to go, like, yeah, yeah, you're right, I'm with you. And then he'd come over here, and he's like, tell me your problem. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, too. I'm with you. 
And so he kind of started winning over deceitfully the hearts of the people over the course of two years so that eventually he leaves the city to go muster his forces and start a coup against his father. And if you're with us last week, that's what Kyle was talking about because as he goes to do this, it's reported to David. David needs to leave to go muster his own army. And so David has to leave the city. Now, Absalom comes into the city. David has left it. When David left, he left 10 of his concubines in charge of the palace. This is going to become important in a second. Absalom comes in with his force. The city doesn't have any forces there. Uh, He comes in to occupy the city and say that I'm going to be the new king. I'm taking over my father's throne because he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, Absalom sits on his his father's throne, uh, consults with one of his advisors and says, what should I do next? And his advisor goes, you know what you should do? You should sleep with your father's 10 concubines on the roof of the palace. You know what Absalom does? That. I don't know if you've ever read this story, if this is the first time you're hearing about this, but you have to be thinking, what on earth is going on here? Can you just marvel at the misery, damage, and heartache? Why does Absalom do this when just verses ago, he was defending his sister's honor from a very similar sin? David's sin has generational consequences. You see, David's sin with Bathsheba set the stage for Absalom's sin to come into full fruition. Do you remember where David was when he saw Bathsheba? On the roof of the palace. He saw Bathsheba bathing, desired her, ordered to take her, killed her husband. It appears that Absalom is mocking his father by desecrating his father's concubines in the very location where David desecrated another man's wife. Our sin has generational consequences. There's a phenomenon I often hear about people when I'm I'm talking with them about how they describe their families of origin, you know, the families that they grew up in. Uh, And they usually say, I'm just like my mom or my dad, or I am nothing like my mom or my dad. There's not a lot of room for middle ground usually. They're usually very strongly like, I'm just like them. If our parents were strict, maybe we were too, or maybe we were permissive. If our parents were overprotective, maybe we're the same, or maybe we're a little reckless. If our parents emotionally used us for their own needs, maybe we also do the same. Or maybe we make it a point to never emotionally need anything from anyone ever again. And I don't think our sin is any different. Maybe you sin in quite the same way as your parents. Maybe you sin in the opposite way, just to spite them. Maybe your parents' sin had generational consequences for you. And this sets the stage for your own sin to come to its full fruition, as it does for your own children. Maybe quite possibly the clearest example of this is alcoholism. Well documented to not quite be genetic, but to be generationally handed down nevertheless. Once abuse occurs in one generation, it tends to reoccur in the following. And I mentioned alcoholism, but it's no less true with the small sins that we have in our lives. The man who uses pornography every night sets a similar generational pattern of pretend intimacy for his own children. The woman who is constantly worried about what she should change about her body will probably create equal and opposite reactions in her children. Now, if you're single or you don't have any children, don't necessarily think that you're off the hook here. Uh, First, your parents' sins still set the stage for your own, and it's worth reflecting on. But second, the Bible says that your sin can also have communal consequences, which is actually going to be our third point. So I'm going to transition into that. 
Our sin creates unintended consequences. It creates generational consequences, but it also creates communal consequences. We see this in this story, and we can start with the concubines. Not only are they concubines of David and not full wives, taken advantage of by David for his own ends, right? Then they're taken advantage of by Absalom for his own ends. And when David returns back to the city after our passage, after killing Absalom, um, he locks them away as if in widowhood for the rest of their lives. Take advantage of, again, for his own ends. David was content to use Bathsheba and others for his own purpose, as was his son Absalom. Women didn't have a lot of choice of what happened to them in these days. The weakest consistently taken advantage of by the stronger. David's communal consequences would set the stage for all of Israel subjugating women to a less than equal dignity before the Lord. To be taken up and discarded at will. There are other communal consequences. Verse 7 says that 20,000 men died in this coup. 20,000 men that would never return to their families. 20,000 men that would leave holes in the fabric of the nation of Israel. These deaths would help set the stage for the civil war that would ravage Israel in the days of David's grandson. Generational and communal. Another communal consequence is the confusion of the people. Verse 10 in our passage says that a certain man saw Absalom hanging in the tree. Uh, this was a little bit interesting maybe when you read through it. You're kind of wondering, like, what? how did he get stuck in a tree? <laughs> um, if you read way back, Absalom's apparently got this beautiful head of hair. Um, and he cut it once a year, and it weighed something ridiculous, like 20 or 30 pounds. Um, and like people always marveled at it. And it seems that what's happening is um, he's fleeing this route by David's army. Um, and he's on his horse, mule, or whatever, and he goes through this thicket of branches, and it gets so entangled in his hair that he's dangling as his horse keeps going. He's trying to cut himself down, and then he gets surrounded by David's soldiers. This certain man sees Absalom hanging in a tree, goes to tell Joab, because this certain man was confused about why he was in battle in the first place. His commanding officer, Joab, had ordered him to kill, but his commander-in-chief, David, gave contradictory orders. When they were leaving the city to go to this battle, David was shouting over the tops of, of the, the military men saying, be gentle with my son Absalom. So when the moment came, the soldier didn't know what to do. After our passage, the same idea is going to continue. Actually, it's, it's in our passage in verse 17, where it says everyone fled to their own homes. They fled to their own homes because after this battle had been fought at such great cost, they returned back to their city and were greeted not with warmth and celebrations of victory, but shame. Because David was grieving Absalom. They fled to their own homes. A lot of times we like to believe that our sin doesn't have communal effects. And it's true that we're not kings of God's people, same as David. And so we might not have the same amount of communal effect as David's. But I wonder if the current sexual confusion of our age is because we've tolerated minor sexual sins. Minor sexual sins, such as pornography, mistresses, and adultery. If our own failure to protect our own marriage contributes to communal degradation, the objectifying of women and of our own bodies. I wonder if concern over our body image curated over the last hundred years has set the stage for a pandemic of eating disorders among middle school girls. 
again, tracing the consequences of sin is a nasty business. And yet we know that the consequences are there. Untold misery, damage, and heartache. What are we supposed to do? I mean, didn't David ask for forgiveness? Isn't that all that we can do? You guys remember that? Nathan came to David, called him on, and he said, you are the man. David fell down, and he said, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to. Lord, please forgive me. As I mentioned at the beginning, David had been forgiven of the internal punishment of his sin, but not necessarily the consequences. So what was David supposed to do? Lie in the bed that he had made? Is that what God tells us? If you're experiencing the consequences of your sin, even though you know you're forgiven of the eternal punishment of it, are you just supposed to sit there and experience it? I'll tell you what David did. He lived ashamed of himself and his sin, sat there and experienced it. He was ashamed of his sin with Bathsheba. He was embarrassed of the actions of his children. He might have been able to see the ripples of his own sin into their lives, and he thought the answer was never speak of it again. Lock it away. It never happened. We don't talk about it. Bury it. In his shame-induced hiding, though, David abdicated something important. He abdicated the opportunity to allow God to rewrite his story. David, in this moment, chose to live in shame instead of grace. And we, when we're confronted with the consequences of our sin, should not live in shame but in grace. I wonder what it would have looked like for David to experience the forgiveness of God so deeply that instead of being ashamed of himself, he could run towards his son Amnon saying, I too have plotted to take someone I deeply desire and I've seen the consequences. Do not do this thing, my son. I wonder what it would have been like for him to run towards Absalom and say, I too have felt the only option was to take matters into my own hands to kill someone and I've seen the consequences. Do not do this thing. I wonder what it would look like for us out of the misery and brokenness of our own lives to run towards others, our own children or in our community and say, I've done this. Don't do it. David didn't do any of this and he hid in shame. But Jesus came not only to forgive us for the eternal punishment of our sin, but to redeem the consequences of our sin came to redeem the consequences of your sin. And he chooses to use the things that we're most ashamed about for good. The Pharisees once asked Jesus about whether a certain man was born blind because of the sin of his parents or his own sin. And Jesus' answer was essentially, um, you're finite and you can't understand that. We understand that blindness happens because we're in a fallen world, but it's not, we can't trace it to particular sins, Right? But nevertheless, Jesus says that this disability is for the glory of God. The consequences are going to be undone so that the glory of God might be revealed. The man who was ashamed for his disability would fulfill the prophecy that those who were blind would now see the Messiah, and those who could see would be blind to him. And this isn't just true of our bodily ailments that are difficult to trace the particular consequence of sin for. There's a story of a woman at a well who had sinned by having six husbands, five husbands and a man she's living with that's not her husband. 
The consequences of her sin were playing out directly in her own life. She was ostracized by her community, unable to collect water with the rest of the women for the scorn that she would receive. And so she's out there by herself. She's living with a man who was content to use her, but unwilling to commit to her given her history. And Jesus sees this woman that no one else sees, forgives her of the eternal punishment of the sin, but also undoes the consequences. And you know how he does it? This woman with an undignified story runs to the town of the people that despised her and says, this man has told me everything I've ever done. And to the people who knew what she had done, that would be shocking in and of itself. And the people who didn't, she would say, he told me that I've had five husbands and that the man that I'm living with right now is not one. The thing that she was most deeply ashamed about would become an announcement of good news, of deliverance. An announcement that not only people in her town would hear, but that we would hear for generations, even today. Jesus' salvation is so much greater than you dare imagine. And it means that here and now, his kingdom is breaking in, undoing the consequences of your sin. And it means that you cannot hide in shame but that they must be brought, your sins must be brought into the light. And that in the process of bringing them into the light, the consequences might be mitigated, not erased, not done with, but mitigated. Jesus will use even those most hideous parts of your story, the, the part of yourself where you say, I'm beyond saving, even there, especially there, he is able to bring new life. This dynamic of shame and grace is, is challenging for us to live in, um, especially once we've been Christians for a while. Because, you know, at one point, it's easy to be a Christian and say, oh, before I was saved, I did all these other things. And I needed God's grace. But after 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it's really difficult to say, I needed God's grace yesterday. Christian, make no mistake, you need God's grace every minute of every hour of every day no less than the day that you needed it on the day of your conversion. Sin that is brought to the light by God's grace can mitigate unintended generational and communal consequences. And this is the very definition of the coming kingdom of God. You know when Jesus keeps saying, the kingdom of God is coming, what exactly does that mean? It means this. I'd like to read to you a somewhat long quote that describes this dynamic of sin and grace, so I hope you'll bear with me. Um, it's from an author named James K.A. Smith. He's written a number of, of great books, and I tried to summarize this in my own words, and I just did it injustice. So I'm sorry that it's going to be long, but so bear with me. <clears throat> Shame is a nefarious enemy of grace that thrives on the backward glance. Shame keeps craning our necks to look at our past with downcast eyes as a life to regret. There are highly spiritualized forms of this fixation that parade themselves as holiness. But in fact, this is the antithesis to grace. Shame lives off the lie of spiritual self-improvement, which is why my past is viewed as a failure. Grace lives off the truth of God's wonder-working mercy. My past, my story, is taken up into God and to God's story. God is writing a new chapter of my life, not starting a new book after throwing out the first draft of my prior existence. God's sanctifying presence in my life doesn't erase what's gone before. Indeed, what God has prepared for me depends on what has gone before. My personal history isn't something to regret. It is something God can deploy in ways I could have never 
imagined. None of this, of course, explains or justifies the traumas that we suffer. Grace is not a retroactive magic that makes evil good. Easter Sunday's light doesn't obliterate the long, dark shadows of Holy Saturday. Grace doesn't justify evil. Grace overcomes it. That we are more than conquerors doesn't make the distress a blessing or the sword a plowshare. What changes is who is with us and what God can do with our own suffering. Shame teaches me to look at my past and see something hideous that makes me regret my existence. In grace, God looks at my past and sees the sketch of a work of art that he wants to finish painting and show to the world. In the hands of such an artist, all my weaknesses are openings for strength. The proverbial cracks that let the light in. Even my sins and my struggles hold the possibility for compassion and sympathy. Only such a God could make even my vices the soil in which he could grow virtue. That ends the quote. Do you believe that God is redeeming the darkest parts of your story? That those cracks in the foundation of who you are is actually where God is working the hardest to bring new life? What would it look like for you to see the consequences of your sin and run towards God's grace instead of hide and shame? To be an agent of fidelity in the world, that your story and fight against sin might be an intentional, generational, and communal change for good. That the adulterer might point others towards fidelity. That the violent might point others towards peace. That the bigoted would point others towards love. Do you believe that God having forgiven you of the punishment of sin, is afraid to also undo its consequences. Do you believe that God is like David, welcoming you into his presence, but then giving you the cold shoulder and saying, ah, you can be in the city, but don't get too close to me. The Bible is not shy about the misery, pain, and heartbreak that sin brings, that is unintended, generational, and communal. But the Bible is also not shy that Jesus Christ came to redeem to buy back, to write a new story, to make all things new. He is the king who, instead of infecting us with more sin like David, is removing the virus from us, personally restoring lost works of art to an unfading beauty. Tracing the consequences of sin is a messy business. It gets even messier when you apply it to your own life when you look at those unintended generational and communal consequences that you have participated in. But sometimes seeing the depth of our own depravity and its consequences is what helps drive us to Christ all the quicker. Helps us see him all the clearer. As redeemed sinners, let us not hide in shame but rest in the salvation accomplished for us. That empowers us to mitigate the consequences of our sin here and now by allowing light to shine into the darkest parts of our hearts to see that even there, God will redeem us and indeed redeem the whole world. Amen? This table that we're about to celebrate together is confirmation uh, that God is not ashamed of us, uh, that he is not keeping us at arm's length, that he doesn't want us to eat at our own tables and come back when we're all cleaned up. He wants us to come to us dependent wholly upon the body and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ.
This table is a declaration that you are loved, that you are cherished, and that redemption is coming. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. He turned and he gave it to his disciples. As I am ministering in his name, now turn and give it to you. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. This table is not the table of Trinity Church or the denomination that we're a part of. It is Jesus' table that he created through his body and his blood. And he invites all those who have been baptized into his name and are members in good standing of an evangelical church. And members in good standing um, doesn't mean that members are perfect, um, that they no longer sin, but it's members who take their sins day by day by God's grace into the light. If you haven't been baptized or need to bring something into the light, I ask you to refrain from partaking in this meal. We celebrate it every week. We'll invite you to come back another time, talk with Kyle and I about how you can do that. Not because God is keeping his distance. Not because God doesn't want you to bring your uncleanness. What God doesn't want you to bring is yourself hiding in shame. But fully dependent upon this body and this blood. In a moment, I will pray. We can come down the center aisle, and we'll go to these two serving stations on my right and my left. Um, if you require gluten-free bread, you're going to want to go that way. There's gluten-free over there. Then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, you are able to transform this little bite of bread and this thimble of wine to nourish our faith. For those who doubt that King Jesus can rewrite their stories, allow them to taste how far he is willing to go. For those afraid of what they've done, allow them to find rest that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. King Jesus, for those who are experiencing the consequences of their sin even today, allow them to see that you can rewrite even this story. That even this story can be used for your glory. And Lord, we would ask that with this small meal, that we might again set our eyes ever clearer on the day when we will indeed sit face to face across from you once and for all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.